creepy. <laughs> You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi, I'm Sally Douglas. And I'm Robin Whitaker. And this is Pentecost uh, week 25. And we're going to be discussing all four readings, briefly perhaps for some of them, uh, starting with Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, and then Psalm 123, the Epistle, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and the Gospel reading from Matthew 25, 14 to 30. That's a mouthful, <laughs> Sally. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, so Judges 4... The book of Judges is about judges, right? I yeah. Mean, it's, so it's the era before kings. Israel will ask for a king. They want to be like other nations, but they're in this phase where they have judges. And there's a bit of a pattern in these stories of an announcement of the people did evil mm-hmm. in the eyes of the Lord. Mm. There's some kind of punishment which often comes through foreign agents. Mm, like Political. Yeah. Um, so often, you know, the, the reverse way to see that is – when other nations have done things to them, like their armies have won a battle, the people have interpreted it yes, as punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's a p- time of suffering and crying out to God and a return to God. God will raise up a judge to kind of correct them mm. and all will be restored and right for a while until that judge dies. <laughs> and then the pattern kind of repeats almost with each judge. Mm. There's a sense of cyclical history, which is an interesting way of looking at life, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we might have different understandings of suffering, but that notion that things aren't linear and progressive, but rather we go in cycles as humans, that's yeah, quite and an interesting re- invitation. Yeah, and we repeat our mistakes over and over yes, and over. Yes. So it, we get this tiny little dive into Judges in the lectionary and so it may or may not be something that you want to explore with your people. It's a tricky thing trying mm. to discern which readings to go with but we do in this reading hear about Deborah, the prophet and I the know, judge. Yeah. So it could be really exciting to explore this. It could be. And um, one of the rare female judges uh, and also named a prophet. Yeah. And there's an interesting interpretive, I was reading about verse 4, that calls her a wife of Lapidoth in the NRSV. Yes. But the language there could also be a woman of Lapidoth, as in this is the area she comes from, rather than naming her by her husband. So that's a little ambiguous. That, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and she's given, uh, so there are some who say, well, she's not a full judge because she doesn't give military leadership. I think that's a bit... Uh, Unfair because oh, yeah. she does. She, she does. Barak comes to him, her and says, what to do? I'm going to go if you go with me, which is this really amazing, yeah, amazing thing to say. And she says, okay, I'll come with you and this is what you need to do. So she does give military guidance as well as um, wisdom to people exactly. in this text. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this reading and even next week's reading in from the Older Testament are both um, interesting kinds of readings to think about in terms of leadership. Um, and but So our scenario here is... The people have done evil, we're told. Mm. This is the interpretation. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is this language of God has given them basically over to the king of Canaan. Mm. So throughout this period of Israel's history, we see constant antagonism with Canaan and the armies of Canaan will come and defeat Israel for a time and they'll fight back. So that's – it's it's you know, it's a hard – I mean, with what's going on in the world right Absolutely. now, Sal, it's, it's really hard. You know, again, this is one of those things in human history that keeps repeating. 
And uh, that notion of um, various cultures, various religions claiming God is on our side so the violence is okay, whichever yes, side that it is. So we need to hold these texts really um, carefully if we're, we're preaching from them, at the, particularly at the moment in our political I context. I think so. Because we have language here of cruelty, of oppression, of just the sense, the 900 chariots of iron in yes. verse 3, the sense of the overwhelming force. Yeah of uh, the military might and, you know, again, we might think of something like Russia and Ukraine yeah. where, the, the, you know, there's this uneven, the sense of the military might of one world power over another um, that invites us perhaps to just reflect on power dynamics and, and all sorts of other things around the way we act cruelty cruelly to one another. That's right. And so how, how to um, hold those different threads is a, is a difficult challenge. But I think people, if people are given um, permission to do that, there, it can be actually be a gift to open up the complexity and the problems mm. in the text so that people are just like, oh, my goodness, I don't even want to read these sections of the Old Testament because of the, does this just um, affirm violence or what does this do? But p- to be able to create space for people mm. to explore this can be part of the unravelling of these texts, I think. I think so. And, and to um, there's beautiful stuff that comes out of the contextual biblical method that people like Gerald West do in South Africa, mm. which is often reading um, – very violent text and particularly the sexualized violent text mm. um, but where he will say that the women they work with in particular and victims of sexualized violence will say I found my story in the biblical story yes so it's not about reading these texts as if they're telling us what to do and justifying violence yes, but yeah. actually recognizing we can find the worst of ourselves or the worst of human behavior and and there can be a strange comfort in that to say that God is there even in even in this. Even in this. I think that's a really important point because if we come to texts like this um, looking for a moral way forward or the good yes. good guys and the bad guys, to put it in that kind of simplest yeah. language, it's just a disaster. Yeah. But if we can come to these texts going, oh, my word, humans, we are so often prone to violence or to selfishness or to brokenness, whatever, whatever form mm. of brokenness that is, um, and yet God continues to meet us in the mess, that's quite a different way into the text. Yeah. So to see these characters as flawed, not as as heroes in some kind of perfect sense, but as, as very frail humans whom uh, within their frailty are still encountered by God and called yeah. into life. Yeah. And are looking for God where, where God's acting. And, and that in the midst of all of that, in a very patriarchal culture, we have Deborah. It's astonishing. So. It's amazing. And so what, just going back to that that wife of um, Lapidoth, it can also be a woman of torches. I mean, that's yes. so this leadership woman. I mean, it is astonishing that she's here and she's preserved. And then in Chapter 5, which is not part of the lecture, this is kind of him, this song to her mm. and to the others. And, so, and, and another woman as well. Well, so for all the frailty of it, the fact that she's even here and on it is important because it also disrupts those um, narratives that, you know, no, women had no authority in, in Old Testament structures or no power. Like here, here we have this woman celebrated. So clearly that those kind of notions are not true. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you were to preach on this, it does lead into the amazing story of um, Jael or Yale, however mm. you, you know, who with the famous <laughs> the Sisera, the, the Canaanite general who will not to give away the end of the story yep. but we'll die at the hand yeah, of have a look. another woman. So <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty amazing story if you want to kind of step away from the rest of the lectionary and actually just go let's enter but then you need to keep reading. That's right and and some would even say that that 
uh, song or hymn in chapter 5 is one of the oldest things that we have yes. in the Old Testament. I mean, so that's amazing just to give people a taste of that as well, holding it lightly. Um, in all of this, I really – not that I love everything that St. Augustine says by yes. any stretch, <laughs> no, but, but I do love his um, – way in which he comes to the text when the sense the literal sense of the text the biblical text does not promote love of god or neighbor then it should be read figuratively yes i just think there's such wisdom in that that's from on christian doctrine like that yes. says so if it's literally if we're going to read it and it thinks it's like an encouragement to violence we need to read it figuratively because we are called to love god and love neighbor yeah that's right mm. yep it's a good place to move on to yeah. the psalm So Psalm 123, Sally, tell me what resonates with you in this psalm. So this is a striking psalm. I think it might resonate but also we might recoil from it because it's such foreign imagery for us at least in the West, in middle-class context. So the imagery is of looking to God. It's possibly a, a psalm of ascent, so getting ready to arrive in Jerusalem, looking up to the temple. But it images um, the, the person who's speaking as a slave or servant and looking to God as master or mistress. So it's it's amazing that it's got this image, female imagery for mm. God as well as male imagery for God. Uh, how they're looking and how, yeah. how the master or mistress, this God imagery, is looking upon the servant is a really interesting thing. Are they looking pleading for mercy because they're terrified or are they looking in confidence with God as the master who is actually the, the Lord of all and is safe and, and wants to um, protect or to care for their servants or honour them? So th- yeah. that's not in the text. And I, and I think very often with the Psalms but with all of the biblical text, we will read it through our own uh, even not conscious imagery for God. We will read it through that. And so if yeah. we're in a in a cycle at the moment of desolation where we're not really talking to God or we're pretty questioning about God's nature, we all have these cycles of, yeah. you know, spiritual consolation and desolation. I think we might just read that and go, well, I don't like that. I'm moving away from that. But if we're mm. in a sense of... Um, spiritual consolation and we're feeling really held in God's loving arms, well, then it could be a lovely image of, mm. well, I don't have to worry about all the tyrants in the world, all the other, you know, CEOs of corporations and um, political leaders. God is my actual yep. mistress and master and I'm held safely. So it's a, I think it invites, it could invite exploration of our deep down God imagery, which changes, it actually changes in our lives. Yeah, I really love that and, and that, we have the, the equally gendered, you know, two sides of the gender yeah. of God going on there. Yeah. And, uh, but th- what you've just said about the posture we bring, like what it could invite quite deep reflection depending yeah. on the nature of your worship and even just giving people some space to ponder that, right? Um, you know, w- what, what, what's the nature of your gaze? Like if you're looking yeah. to God today, are you looking to God for help? Yeah. Are you looking for comfort? Are you yep. looking for hope? Are you looking up in gratitude and just going, thank you, yeah. you know, this wonderful thing has happened in my life? Like, yeah. it could, And because there's this repetition of eyes in, yes. in the psalm. And so, I mean, you know, if you have visual imagery in worship, whether it's an order of worship or a, a PowerPoint or whatever, like imagine having different images of eyes and, and mm. what is our perception of God's gaze on us right now. And obviously from a... Christian perspective, uh, if we take seriously that somehow, and we'll come to this in in future readings, but if Jesus is the King, is the Lord, then we are told that the the gaze of this one is of kindness and of gathering in Mm. and lifting up and, and not breaking the bruised reeds. But Sometimes we can know that intellectually, but in our hearts we might not be there. So it could be a really creative way to explore that kind of 
aspect of our relationship with God. Yeah, and the other line I love in this is at the end of verse 2, our eyes look to the Lord until he has mercy upon us. Like there's a persistence in looking. Like we will will keep coming back to God, right, until God actually answers whatever our prayer is. Like we will... And there's lots of other parts of the, the Bible that talk about the need for persistence. Absolutely. Um, even the sense uh, of, you know, if you cry out to God, you can actually change God's mind. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, absolutely. So. And the Psalms are so full of that. And mm. I just, I, I think there's so much invitation in the Psalms to become a bit more bolshy. Yes. Um, <laughs> they, they model to us, you know, if you are fed up, tell God. You know, yeah. like the words are there for us. Like I have soaked my pillow with tears. Where are you, God? You know, yes. I'm going to keep looking at you until you answer. Like that's There's a beautiful invitation for the, us to become, to break out of nicety and become um, honest and robust in yeah. our relationship with God. Yeah. Oh, lovely. So the epistle, is that yes. what we're up to next? let's do this. Let's oh. do, everyone ready? Catch oh. up. <laughs> um, Thessalonians, I'm just going to say up front, this is a slightly strange little letter mm-hmm. of Paul, but one of the reasons I find it intriguing and worth spending time with is it is our earliest or most ancient piece of Christian writing. So scholars tend to think it's Paul's earliest letter, mm-hmm. which makes it the earliest Christian thing we have in the New Testament, possibly written in the 40s. So, you know, we're talking only a, you know, a decade, 15 years after Jesus. Mm -mm. And so it does reflect some very early Christian concerns and that to me makes it historically interesting. Mm -mm. Last week we talked about the previous section, which was a concerns about what happens to those who've died. Mm. So people have died and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So one of the ongoing threads in this letter is that um, Jesus will come back any day. It's, it, there's quite a bit of evidence, I think, I don't know what you think about this, Sally, mm. that the earliest Christians did expect Jesus to come back quite quickly. And I think that sense, like if we take seriously that somehow, not just Paul, but various people had ongoing experiences of the risen Jesus, yes. which totally disrupted everything that they'd already thought. It's It makes kind of logical sense. Okay, cool. Well, it's all going to come to a head quite soon. Yep. Like, that because the, the the evidence of the New Testament and other early church texts is that it wasn't just Paul or Peter who had these experiences. These were ongoing experiences. They were actually changing them at a fundamental level. And so it makes sense. to be like, okay, cool, let's let's move on. Yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um as soon as you see language of, you know, times and seasons, mm. a bit like the Matthew parable we're gonna to get to soon, we're in these sections of text, um, particularly in Matthew, that are kind of quite apocalyptic and very eschatological um, and with that comes some dualisms Mm. so night and day language will be used here Um, the kind of being ready being alert this idea of Jesus coming like a thief in the night yeah Um, and the great irony of be alert because you'll know he'll come like a thief in the knife, but you don't know when. So yes. you kind of be ready, but you can't actually be ready. So what does being ready look like? What does it look like? And and, and they're kind of specific stuff. It's almost like anti-nihilism, like don't be drunk, don't, you yes. know, don't. Don't get caught out. Don't get caught out in, in the trappings, like focus mm. on what is important and yeah. real. Yeah. But I, I think if we're to read, um, you know, like with a lot of Paul's letters, if we've got to read almost, I don't want to say beneath the theology because the, the theology informs everything, but um, 
this is not a passage to help us wonder about the time and the season and when Jesus will come. That's missing the point. Totally. Uh, The point is, as it often is for Paul, about ethical behaviour while you're waiting. So um, Nijay Gupta puts it like this in his commentary, you are day people. Mm. Be people of the day. Mm. And then he, you know, and so we can track what it means in the Bible to be people of the light. Light light is associated with salvation, the light that will dawn on the Gentiles, Mm. um, the light that is the incarnation that pierces the darkness of the world in John's gospel. Mm. um, You know, what, what does it mean to be people of the day? Perhaps, yeah, I don't know what that phrase means to you, Sally. But well, I think that I think for Paul and for many other early church writers, the world is not neutral. Like there are dark no. forces at work, and so to be people of the day isn't just um, be cheery or <laughs> yeah, do, doesn't mean be toxic positivity. No, that's right. Be, but uh, there yeah. are actually other forces at work yeah. that are about um, violence, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, but are, are around bringing people down. Yeah, and and. I think for Paul, the language is also of um, there are internal forces that can bring you down individually. Like, you know, in mm. Romans he talks about I try, I want to do what I uh, the right but I can't. You know, there's a sense in which there are caught other up in, I'm caught up in other forces. And so to be people of the day is to actually step into the light of Christ or the, um, that comes to us in Christ and to be infused with that. Um, so it's got this cosmic level but then it's got this really tin-tack practical level. I love how it ends with, you know, encourage one another and build each other up, oh, yes. Like as, as you're actually doing, like, yeah, keep doing that. That's right. And yeah. so the the contrast is, and we see it all the time in the church and beyond the church, where we tear one another down. Like that is such a human uh, knee jerk reaction in our ways of being in our relationships. Is to oh, did you see how what that person did, or can't believe they did that? You know, it's yeah. the the tearing one another down rather than the building up. And that so this cosmic reality might have really, really um, kind of sacred, mundane outworkings of seeking to encourage and build up one another. I think that's right. And, um, you know, I even like the verse just before that about, you know, well, a couple of verses. God has destined us not for wrath. So the day of the Lord is often associated with the wrath of God, right? So this day to be feared. Yeah. you know, the day of the Lord in, in the Older Testament and in other apocalyptic writing is when God will come in judgment. Mm. And Paul's saying you don't have to worry because God did not destine us for Amen. wrath. God has destined us for salvation. Yeah. Let's not get into this is not about some predestination nonsense. No, no, no. Yeah. It's just yep. this is the intention of God. The intention of God is that people are saved. Yeah. Um, and so whether we're awake or asleep um, because Christ died for us, we might live with him. So – uh, Kylie and I talked about this a bit last week with both the parables and some of this stuff in Thessalonians. None of us do this perfectly. Yes. Right? <laughs> we, we, we often fail to be people of the day. We yeah. often are people of the dawn and the dusk and sometimes the night. And, yeah. Uh, we don't always encourage each other, as you said, and um, mm-hmm. we will fall asleep rather than be alert all the time. It's kind of exhausting to be a constantly good disciple, let's yeah. be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but there's grace in here too that whatever state we're actually found in, we will live with God. Yeah, and also that sense that it's not all up to us. So this sense yeah. in the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. So this sense that it's if we allow God um, to work with us and to enable us, then we're not doing all of this on our own. And we will still fail, of course, but even from the get-go, it's yeah. not about our own efforts. Yeah. No, it's not. But it, it is about, a, I think, a sort of intentionality 
like I wouldn't I wouldn't if you're going to preach on this passage don't get tied up in the morality of like drunkenness and no. soberness and stuff like these are being used again as contrasts. Yeah. Paul is drawing on stereotypes of the kind of people who are drunkards and that mm-hmm. that taps into a a whole lot of expectations in his world around self-control. Yeah. Like you were, you know, being moral was about being self-controlled. Yeah. So we get that kind of One of the language. fruit of the spirit too, interestingly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um this isn't about whether you're for or against alcohol, although we could say some things about that. But um, it's it's about a kind of a posture towards yeah. God, I think, yeah. and one another, and to one another. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. All right, should we deal? We've been putting off. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> let's go there. Let's the go. The parable of the talents yes. in Matthew twenty-five. So don't you love this parable? <laughs> I confess that I do not. <laughs> it's um, a really difficult parable. Oh, and I'm, it, I'm hoping you have uh, the answers. Well, Alan. I've got a few wonderings actually. Oh, good, good, yeah, good. I do. Um, interestingly though, just as we start, that the word talent comes from this story. So it comes into language in the Middle Ages. Oh. Yeah, so isn't that interesting? So the power of this text, like this sacred text that we hold, um, continuing to impact all kinds of things, including our use of language. Yeah. It's curious though, it's got difficult things. What does it mean about using the bank and interest? Like that's that's a really curious thing for a, a Jewish storyteller to be um, talking about. Obviously there's Matthew's favourite weeping and gnashing of teeth. I oh, know, I do actually quite like that about Matthew. Matthew it's so sort of, well, it's just so sort of vivid and it over is. the top. It like is. out of darkness where there's weeping, weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Do you reckon, I wonder if people started to join in when they heard the gospel out loud because it's repeated so he, often Yeah, in he Matthew. does like that. Yeah. And, and it ties into what you were saying before about the kind of them and us-ness, right, mm, like mm. that you can find in all of these texts. Yeah. Um, I think part of forming Christian identity and there's there's a sort of a – dangerous side to this is that in trying to state who we are we often want to state who's not us yes and that's the people in the outer darkness yeah and, um and, and if yeah. you read like i mean we're being a bit flippant possibly sounding but there are multiple stories where um there's a telling in luke for example and and matthew and luke the luke and author doesn't have the weeping like so we know this is a Matthean. but i mean it is occasionally yeah. in other gospels but this is a Matthean no, thing yeah it's a very matthew phrase. so we don't know why um, commonly it's thought that maybe there were arguments within the community about whether you were really doing the things that were faithful or not and who was in and who was out. Um, and we do that when, as humans, yep. when we feel under threat or we feel like people aren't, aren't pulling their weight, there's this, the desire to other is yep. um, profoundly really. strong. Mm. Yeah. Well, should we kind of walk through this maybe even with the text and unpack some things as we go? Sure. Um, it's not in our actual passage, but we've got to remember that the intro to the previous parable of the ten young women with their mm-hmm. lamps um, is the kingdom of heaven is mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. So these parables. Do you assume that this is yeah, the same part? Yeah, of that. I think so because it just kind of continues with this other story. Yeah. Um, and again, we need to. If this confronts you, I think you've got the point of a parable, which yes. they're supposed to kind of make us do a bit of work and shock us and yes. wonder. And they're not a story with a, a, 
a morality play no, involved in no. them that's much more provoking and I think different things will annoy us or challenge us or disrupt us at different times when we read them totally. because we are continuing to change yeah. and the stories continue to challenge and provoke. Yeah. And yeah. I think we've also got to be careful not to read them allegorically where the king or the manager or the household owner is always God. Yeah. Because in this particular one that becomes quite problematic if we read it in that. So let's go. Yeah. There's a man, he goes on a journey. So mm-hmm. this is uh, – it's imagining a, a wealthy landowner mm-hmm. who owns – Slaves that he yep. entrusts his property to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should remember not all slaves. There can be a stereotype that slaves are very low level. Yeah, some have, but there were slaves with very good educations yes. who were entrusted with enormous responsibility yeah. because Estates they had skills, all yep. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and the scenario imagined is that each one gets. Um, Oh, well, one gets five talents, one gets two, and one gets... So different, one. which I yes. think this is fascinating. I think this According is really great. According to ability. So yes. what do we do with that? Well, see, what I, I love this because I think particularly in Australia and because the Uniting Church is um, formed in like, like swimming in Australian culture really, this is quite challenging to us because we love our language of we're all equal yeah. um, and we have a flat – well, theoretically we have uh, flat structures. Yeah. Now – what that can unfortunately do is make people who have particular gifts feel like they have to squish them and at the other end of that, people who don't have those particular gifts feel guilty because they don't have them. And I just wonder how different we might be if we were mm. able to say absolutely we're all equal, we're all beloved of God, that that full stop, no question. However, we all have different gifts and skills and therefore the expectations will be different for each of us. Yeah. Like that, that, I think that's actually potentially very freeing if we could live into that and encourage one another accordingly in that. And it fits with that gospel saying that I can't remember where it is right now, but like to those who are given much, much is expected. Exactly. Right? Like that sort of, um, exactly. you know, yeah. So the burden of responsibility and that's often drummed in, particularly in our culture, not only if you've been given... Um, talents in the modern sense of that word, but also wealth. That's like, right. That you have a responsibility you, to use them well. Now, wouldn't that be great if that was emphasised again? Like, really, <laughs> yes. in our culture, you yeah. know, rather than this, it's all about me and and what I can. Yeah, do that's right. With this. Yeah. Um, I just I just want to share this amazing um, mm. aphorism I heard on Soul Search several months ago. There was uh, an Egyptian American poet, mm. and he shared all these aphorisms. His name is Yahia Lab. Babidi, but mm. has this, the same mistakes are not permitted for the master as the student. Ooh. And I just that sense of there are different expectations for different people. The same mistakes are not permitted for the master as the student. Yeah. Like I just love – so this this story kind of presents that. So they're given different um, talents according to their different abilities, so yeah. different amounts of wealth. And the wealth, of course, is huge in this story, like the amount of wealth. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And so I think at this point this story to an ancient hearer mm. would not be shocking. They would no. be like, oh, yeah, people get a – you know – get different levels of responsibility and slaves that it's a very hierarchical society That's so right. this this so far we're kind of like oh, okay often in parables the twists come as you keep reading yes or hearing <laughs> as it does and you know so the five talents trades makes five more the guy with two talents makes two more and the one and they get one to keep them and they, they get, get to keep it yes, all yep. yeah that's right so they've doubled their money yep and the guy with one talent terrified says i've heard you harsh yes. hides it hides it and then, he doesn't want to lose that one no. thing. And then this is what I find fascinating in the story. He's heard the master's harsh and then what does he experience? 
The harshness. The harshness. Yeah. So this is where I wonder, into, this is just, this is the preacher Sally rather than the biblical scholar Sally about yep. to say this sentence. I wonder what the invitation is then about how much our perception of God shapes our experience Ooh. of God. Yes. Say that again. That's Yeah. So how much our perception of God shapes our experience of God. So if you think about, if you just bring it down to a, um, a relational, human relational level, if you go into a meeting and you think they don't want to hear what I have to say, they don't want to, no, this group doesn't value me or whatever, that will shape how you relate in the yep. meeting. You'll be more shut down probably or defensive or yep. whatever version of that you do. And that's possibly likely that people won't respond to you openly in that yes. meeting because of the energy that you're giving. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying – self-fulfilling. It does it become does, self-fulfilling. No. Yeah. yeah. So what if it might be the same with God? Like, mm. oh, my word. Yeah, so that could be a really interesting thing to wonder. Yes, and it links back to the psalm about when we gaze at God, what do we expect? What do we expect? Yeah, yeah. what are we looking for? What do we think we're looking at? Yeah. What are, yeah. yeah. No, I really like that. That would be a fruitful avenue um, to play with. Um, yeah, because, yeah, because, and this is, this is my problem, this is my warning about not reading this allegorically because if we make the master God, we also do have a pretty ha- – this is a yeah. harsh master. Absolutely. Um, and he, he kind of has no patience for, well, you knew I was harsh, so what did you expect I'm going to be harsh? <laughs> like, so that's also self-fulfilling. That's right. That's, that's, so you have to unpack it. That's right. But what is – you know, you can have an interesting conversation about what does it mean to take risks. I mean, it would have been awesome – I'm not telling Jesus what to do, but it, would, <laughs> but it would have been great if there was another character or maybe the middle character tried and failed but that was still okay. Like that would be yeah. great. But, I mean, but then we have the actual models of people like Peter who completely fails and is still loved and welcomed. So I yeah. think if we actually look at not just – this is when it's beautiful if we're coming to tricky readings like this, if we look at the whole Christ event, not just yep. a particular story in the Gospels that is attributed to Jesus. So how does Jesus actually treat sinners and um, mm. disciples who fail? Oh, my goodness, by saying come over and have a meal together and and continuing on the journey together. Yeah. So I think we've got to read those stories with the whole Christ event in mind. Yeah. And I was thinking before about the thing you said about August, Augustine and love. Um, yeah. And, and that where, you know, one of the ways people have read these sort of hard sayings um, is in the spiritual or figurative way. So one of the wonderings I have mm. is to actually take the point of view of the poor fearful slave who got the one talent and hid it because he was so scared of losing that one thing he had Mm. and wondering when does our fear stop us acting when does our fear mean we bury that even if we feel like we haven't been given very much whether that's opportunity or natural gifts or family background or whatever that is yeah when does our fear of failure mean we don't even try with yeah, what we have. It becomes self-fulfilling again. I've been listening to the Freakonomics podcast has been doing a whole series on failing well. Oh, fantastic. Which I find fascinating because I remember a conversation with a, a psychologist years ago talking about one of the questions he asked his kids at dinner is what did you fail at today? Yes. Because if you haven't failed at something, you haven't tried something. Yeah. So oh, for the church so community that's so risk averse, yeah. I kind of want to ask that question. I think it's a great question. And I think our culture in general is risk averse and it's like, like not liking things out of our comfort zone. Yes. What, like This is a, a great way to explore that. Surely if we believe in a God of grace, there's room for failing. Yeah, mm. because God sees that we try yeah. in our hearts. And yep. yes. So maybe we've slightly rescued a very difficult reading. All the best to you as you yeah, preach. Yeah, good luck, everyone. <laughs> by the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College, 
and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.